continuing our series on taboo today. There's four, four parts to it. We covered hell. We covered, what else did we cover? Science. We, co- we covered sex last week, which again, has a lot of people listening to it. And today we're going to cover money. Isn't that all the church wants? Is our money after all? Look, right on cue, they're taking the offering. Isn't that all that the church wants? So I want to talk about the subject of money today. I got a bit of feedback coming from somewhere. Yeah, it doesn't, I'm just, just between you and me. I know you'll, you'll, you'll work your magic there. So I want to talk about money today. Uh, and I'm going to do it maybe in a way that you haven't heard uh, before. Um, I just want to start by making some observations about money. Uh, Virtually every single part of our lives has a relationship with money. I would like to challenge you to tell me any area of life that does not have a relationship with money. Just go ahead and shout it out and tell me if you can think of any. Don't say none, because I'm saying none. (laughs) Any area of life that does not have a relationship with money. You say, the husband says, well, I kissed my wife on the cheek this morning. Didn't cost me a dime. (laughs) Say, well, did you brush your teeth? Toothpaste costs money, right? Can you think of any area of life that does not have either a direct or an indirect relationship with money? And the answer is, it's very, very hard to do that. It it seems like everything in our lives has some kind of connection with the subject of money. And it's an unavoidable thing. No matter how you slice the proverbial cake, uh, every part of our lives has some kind of connection with money. That's a little scary when you start thinking about it, though, because the next observation is we never seem to have enough. Never. We always seem to want a little more or need a little more. Always. Most people, if you ask them, do you make enough money? Would you like more money? They'd say, sure. How much more would you like? You know, for me, it's a shoebox full of $100 bills. I would, I, that would be really, really, I'd love to have that, you know. Or would you say, just a little more would, would, would get me by. Um, And the reason that we can make this observation is because when we don't have enough money, what do we do? When we don't have enough, how how do we get more? Get a loan. Yeah, either that or steal, right? So you can rob a bank if you want to get more money, or you can borrow it. Right? And you'll borrow it from somewhere. Maybe your grandma and grandpa will give you money. Or, but usually we borrow money from where? Starts with a C. The credit cards. Yeah. We, we borrow, and that, that's a way that we, you know, we, and when we do that, we get ourselves into, into something that starts with D. Debt, yeah. Let me show you the average Canadian consumer debt. Um, this is in, on the left, you'll see, wow, that is a big screen. On the left, you'll see it by age there. Uh, this is from 2016. So the average Canadian consumer debt, excluding 
your mortgage, if you have one that you're paying on your house, is 22,081 bucks. That's a lot of pesos. So between the ages of 18 and 25, it's 8,343, 26 to 35, 17,000, 36 to 45, 26, 27 grand, 46 to 55. That's a big, that's the biggest ones. A lot of people in this room are in that age, 32 and a half thousand bucks, 54 to 65, 28, etc. The only good news there is in Quebec, if you go province by province, I didn't show it on the screen, but province by province, Quebec is lower than the other provinces. So the average household debt of the Quebecer is 18 grand and change. Still a lot of, so if, though, if that's correct, you're probably somewhere I would suggest, you know, between the low 8,400 bucks and the high 33,000 in consumer debt or credit card debt, essentially. And uh, this, this means that we spend more than we bring in. And so when what you bring in is less than what you spend, you're, you're getting the excess from somewhere and, and, we're, and we're borrowing it is what we're doing. Another observation, we have trouble planning for the future. We do have trouble doing this. Those of you who play the tape forward and you think about when you will eventually stop working, and for some of you, you say, I'll never stop working, I'll just stop living because I've got so much debt to pay, you know, <laughs> but I'll be, I'll be paying debt until I drop dead, some of you may say, okay, but we, we, if you play the tape forward and you think about something like retirement and you think about, well, how much money am I going to have when I retire, the stats aren't particularly uh, good on this. Um, half of Canadian couples between the ages of 55 and 64 have no employer pension between them. In other words, they've got no money that their employer is helping them to put away money with, you know, no kind of group plan for the future. They've got nothing between them. And of those, less than 20% of middle income families have saved enough to adequately supplement government benefits at retirement. And government benefits at retirement are low. So we don't, we don't really have enough. We don't really plan for the future well enough. And on top of that, we are constantly evangelized with the gospel of materialism. I mean, the, the, the gospel of materialism is the most successful uh, message in, in North American culture. Materialism is everywhere. It is the fastest growing religion in the world. <laughs> Materialism and really secularism is a close second. But we are so unbelievably materialistic as a culture that we have to have this, we have to have that. And, you know, the grass is always greener on the neighbor's side. The car is always nicer in the neighbor's lot. And we're preached constantly this gospel of materialism, which is very, very successful, especially in North American culture. The other day, I saw a Tesla, a nice red Tesla. Any of you ever seen one of these cars? Oh my, what a what a material a material lover's dream! This car is that with the eagle doors and the big screen and the gadgets galore. Wow, what a materialistic toy this thing is, you know. 
but we are very, very materialistic as a nation. And the entire Western world is hugely materialistic. All you have to do is visit the other side of the world and you will realize, wow, we have a lot of stuff, more stuff than we even know what to do with sometimes. All of this all kind of snowballs together to put us into, you know, when we start thinking about money, it's sometimes the thing that we want to avoid the most. So I want to tell you a story about money today uh, that's about 3,000 years old. It's in the Old Testament, and it's a story of a prophet's huge financial debt. A prophet who got himself in enormous debt, and then he passed away, and he died. Uh, the story is in 2 Kings chapter 4. And verses 1 to 7 in the Bible's Old Testament, this is the 8th century before Jesus is even born. This is a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away kind of thing, all right? This is an old, old story, and it's, it's one of the most powerful stories about money in the entire Bible. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, if you look it up in your paper Bible, or in your, your electronic Bible, those of you who have those things, I'll give you time. It's in the Old Testament, uh, in, in kind of uh, the middle or the, about a third of the way through the Old Testament, all right? And here's the story. I'll read it to you, just seven verses. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets, this man was in prophet school, if you will, under the great prophet Elisha. Elisha was the one who said to his mentor Elijah when he was taken up to, to heaven in this supernatural whirlwind, you know, Elisha said to his mentor, give me a double portion of whatever you, whatever you have. So the, the stuff that makes you tick, Elijah, I want twice as much of that stuff, basically is what he said. And so this man uh, who we meet in verse 1 is in Elisha's prophet school, if you will. So uh, the wife of this man from the company of the prophets cried out to the prophet Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. So this man in prophet school died. And you know, Elisha, that he revered the Lord. I mean, he, he loved God. He was in your prophet school, uh, but he's dead now. And now his creditor, his bank, effectively, is coming to take my two sons as his slaves. So my husband was in debt, and his creditor is going to come and take payment and take my two sons. And Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? What do you want me to do for you, in other words? How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? And she replies, your servant has nothing there at all. It's empty. We're poor. Except a little oil. That's all I've got. So Elisha says to her, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. That's all you need, empty jars. 
You go and you ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't just ask for a few. So I want you knocking on the doors of your community, and I want you to ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Okay? Not just a few. You've got to pound the pavement and ask for these empty jars. And then go inside your house and shut the door behind you and your sons. So I want you and your sons in the house alone. And I want you to pour the oil that you have into all the jars that you've collected from your neighbors. And as each one is filled, I want you to put it to one side. Those are my instructions for you. So verse 5, she left him and afterward, presumably after she had gotten all these jars from all of her friends, all of her neighbors, she left him and afterward shut the door behind her and her sons. And they brought the jars to her, and she kept on pouring. This is olive oil, by the way, back then. She poured the oil that she had into one jar, and she's instructed to keep on pouring. So uh, they kept bringing the jars to her, and she kept on pouring. Pouring the oil, pouring the oil. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. What's wrong with you? Where's the jars? But he replies, there's not a jar left. We filled all the jars that we collected with this oil. I mean, you, you have to put yourself back there and imagine that this lady's got this probably one half a bottle of oil, and she just keeps pouring, and it keeps on coming. So she's probably saying, don't say nothing, just give me another bottle. <laughs> Pour it again. Give me another bottle, don't say a word. Pour, pour, do exactly what he said. Don't say anything. Nobody say, just give me the bottle. Do exactly what the prophet says. And then finally, she gets to the end of the lot. No more bottles. And the son says, there's no jar left. And so the oil stops flowing. And she went and she told the man of God, she says, Elisha, I did exactly what you said. And he says, go and sell the oil. All the oil that you just collected in all those, uh, all those bottles, now I want you to sell it. Strange. Go and sell the oil and pay your debts. Your debts that have, that have amassed, that your husband amassed, uh, that, that are going to cost you the lives of your sons, now you have the money to pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. So not only does your debt get paid, but you and your sons are going to be okay. End of story. Magnificent story. Some observations that apply to us 2,800 years later. Uh, number one, God is in your financial corner. God knows exactly what your financial situation is. And you may be a miserable manager of your money, but God is in your corner. God doesn't condemn you at all for the way that you handle money. He is in your corner. Look what Elisha says to this lady. She's in severe, severe debt. It's going to cost the lives of her children. This is how much debt she is in. And Elisha doesn't turn around to her and say, well, you know, if, if your husband had learned in our budgeting class in our prophet school, because prophets aren't supposed to go into debt. If he'd have just paid attention in budget class, you wouldn't have had this problem. So you need to pray and figure out the answer to your problem. 
No, Elisha doesn't do that. Elisha says to her, how can I help you? How can I help you? What do you want me to do for you? It's an amazing uh, statement. because Elisha, you can look at him as a type of Jesus. There's only one person in Scripture who does the kinds of things that Elisha does. Only one, and that's Jesus. He's the, you look at the miracles of Elisha. Uh, there's only one other person in Scripture who does those kinds of things. In fact, there's a miracle that Jesus does that looks very suspiciously like this miracle. It's when Jesus feeds the thousands and thousands of people, probably upwards of 15,000 people if you count them all. Uh, it's called the feeding of the 5,000. You know this story in the New Testament where, where they've got a really small amount. You know, they got five loaves of bread and two fishes and, uh, and so Jesus says, well, this is what we have. Sit the people down, put them in these groups, and, and, and they do that. And Jesus takes the food. He, he blesses the food. He hands out the food. He keeps handing out the food. And you've got all these thousands and thousands and thousands of people who were fed. There's even leftover for the disciples, suspiciously the same as this story. Um, and so it, the point here, the first one, is that God is in your corner financially. He's not trying to condemn you. He's not looking at you and say, well, if you just tithe more, you'd be out of trouble. Okay? Tithing is a good thing. Well, I'll get there in a second. But God is not condemning you. God is in your corner financially. And he's asking you, what, what, do, you, what do you need? What do you want me to do? And he's not asking you in a sarcastic way. He's really saying, what do you want me to do? It's, it's an encouragement, this. Uh, uh, second observation, there is always something in your house. Every one of you has something that God can take and that God can multiply. Every one of you has something in your house. Her, she's, she's about as poor as poor can be. Like her two sons are on the chopping block. She got a little bit of oil. That's it. And her first answer is nothing. I've got, she's saying it to Elisha the prophet, who presumably would know what she has in her house. If you read the miracles of Elisha, he seems to know everything. So she says, your servant has nothing there at all. And sometimes it feels like that. Sometimes it looks like that. Sometimes we look at our situation and say, we've got no resources. We have nothing at all, except a little oil. That's all you need. In, in God's economy, what he's trying to say is, well, tell me what you have. Tell, tell me what you have in your house. Uh, because nobody has nothing. You all have something. The question is, what can be done with the something that God has already given to you? There's always something that you have in your house. The question is, what is it? Now, don't say you have nothing. You've got something. Uh, observation number three, God uses systems to provide for us. You have a system of sorts that's put in place here, and uh, you, you have Elisha, who could presumably just multiply the oil. He doesn't need her to go and get all these jars. I mean, Elisha raised the dead. Uh, he, Elisha made, a, made an axe head float in the water. I mean, Elisha did some pretty pretty powerful things, but he puts a little system in place for this woman to follow 
um, and he's going to multiply what she already has if she will follow uh, this system. So in verse 3, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Well, why are their jars empty, the neighbors? Well, because they don't have oil in them. Why don't they have oil in them? Well, because they're waiting to get some more oil to put more oil in the jars. So you're not talking about people who have all of these resources and super wealthy people. You're talking about a culture there where, you know, people are living paycheck to paycheck, so to speak. They're, they're struggling to make ends meet. All right. There is a, there is a gospel out there. Uh, that teaches, uh, you know, that believers are always supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and wise and have money falling out of their pockets. If they'll just claim it in Jesus' name, they'll get the money and all that. You're not going to hear that gospel from me, okay, because that's not what you find in the Scripture. Uh, you see a lot of people in the Scripture living paycheck to paycheck, uh, even the parents of Jesus themselves. When Jesus was born, uh, his mother uh, Mary, his stepfather, you could call him Joseph, didn't even have enough money for the sacrifice to be made at the temple when they dedicated Jesus. So they had to go with a substitute. They had to go with some pigeons uh, rather than some doves. And here you have, well, all my neighbors have got empty jars for sure. Well, I want you to go and I want you to ask them for their jars. Knock on the door. Hi, it's me. What do you want? Your jars. Oh, well, why? Prophet said so. <laughs> no, I, do you have any more? That's one jar. Do you have any more jars? Prophet told me to ask for all your jars. Oh, she's walking around with her shopping cart filled with all these empty jars. Goes to the next house. Knock, knock, knock. <laughs> she must have looked like a bag lady in that day. <laughs> you know, she, what she got? She got all these empty, empty jars. It's a system bit of a strange thing that, that the prophet asks, but you go and you ask for those jars. Perhaps uh, Elisha did this because when he does do the miracle of multiplication, who's going to find out about it? Well, her whole community will because it's their jars. And they, they're going to hear, hey, you know what happened with them jars? The prophet did the miracle. She didn't have to pay her sons to the debtor. That's something that would glorify God, you see, in the whole community. Um, and so God puts his system in, and she, she, she does it. And then uh, uh, Elisha says, well, you got to go in your house now, and you got to start pouring. You do what I say. You pour, and you pour, and you pour. And so they, they do it. And then they've got all the jars. And Elisha says, now I want you to sell them. It's a, it's a system, and God uses these things uh, to provide for us. And he does so today. Uh, we often expect God to do something blindly sort of supernatural, and it just sort of falls out of the sky uh, for him to provide for us. But the fact is that God wants to use the natural and the supernatural. And when you, when you, when you flow that way, and you say, okay, well, God, what do you want me to do with what I have? And you figure out what that is. God will use the natural. God will use the supernatural. He'll use whatever he wants. Uh, next observation, you've got to do what he says. So obedience in this story uh, led to provision. 
she did not put up a, a, a fight with Elisha. Um, about the only resistance she gives is at the beginning of the story where she says, I don't have anything except a little oil. So, I mean, she just does exactly what the prophet says. She is obedient, and obedience does lead uh, to provision. It is amazing to me to observe what happens when people start being obedient to God with the money that they have. And this is where I'll talk a little bit about tithing, okay? Those of you who are waiting for that. Uh, when, you, when a person learns to tithe, and, and a, a tithe means a tenth. Okay? Now, now I, know, I know what the statistics are in, in the church, especially in the Western world. Most people in most churches do not give a tenth to their church, okay? Most do not. Most give about 3% to their church. Those are just the facts, okay? I'm not saying you're amongst that lot. You may be special, and that's good. I really hope you're special. That will help us. Uh, but most people don't do that. But imagine if you did. Imagine if you actually gave a tenth to your local church, i.e. this church. Just imagine that, okay? Some of you do already. Perhaps some of you don't. I mean, I don't really know. But imagine if you did, or let's, let's imagine the church down the street, okay? If the church down the street, you know, everybody in the church gave a tenth to their church. Do you know what would happen in the lives of the individual people? Forget about the church for a minute. When you say, okay, I'm going to give a tenth of my revenue away, what does that do? That forces you to budget. It forces you to figure out, okay... If I'm really going to take that kind of thing seriously, and I'm going to actually live off of 90% of my income, boy, I better figure out where that 90% is going to go. Otherwise, I'm going to be flat broke. I'm going to tithe so much, I'll be poor. Thank you, God. I tithe myself into poverty, right? So if you're really going to do that, <laughs> you really have to budget, and you really have to figure out where your money is going to go. And when you do that, and when you're put into a position where you actually have to budget, guess what happens? Your money starts to, starts to get to be a pleasant thing to talk about because you'll only spend what you bring in. You see, it's a, it's a, a discipline to give to God. And many people, they're on different roads, you know, to give this percent, that percent. But imagine when you give a tenth and you actually hit that line, that you see as a real standard in the Old Testament in particular. You know how powerful the churches in North America would be if everybody who actually went to a church, A, went to it, and B, tithed to it? You would have revival across the Western world. This is where it gets quiet, I know. <laughs> but you, you would have revival because the resources that would be available to touch communities, families, cultures, cities... You'd have more resources, churches would have more resources than they could, than they could do with it. They'd have to give it away because they'd have so much on their hands. That's the power of, of money when it's used right. O obedience does lead to God's provision. But we have to do what he says, just like uh, the lady had to do what Elisha said. Here's the system, whatever it may be. 
you will see eventually the blessing of God, even just naturally when you learn to budget. Most people don't really budget. Uh, a budget is you know where your money is going. I would, I would challenge you, those of you who your, your, your finances are like wildly out of control, take a month to just see where you spend your money. So take every receipt where you spend money and collect it. And at the end of the month, sit down and look at it. You're probably going to be stunned out of your brains. You'll probably say, I didn't know I was spending so much money on Starbucks coffee. I spent 50 bucks this month on Starbucks coffee. I paid six bucks for a coffee. Do you know what a markup that is? That coffee cost them a quarter to make probably. And you spent six bucks on it 10 times in a month. 60 bucks on Starbucks coffee. Well, thank you very much, Starbucks. I mean, you, you really helped Starbucks. Question is, did you help yourself with that, okay? Say, well, I spent this much money on television and I didn't watch it? Uh, so Bell or Videotron or whatever took all this money from me, but I didn't even watch it. It's like I'm just giving them money. Wow, I'm just throwing my money at Bell or Videotron or whatever. You'll be stunned. If you, if you don't have a budget, just first exercise for you. Take a month, a month of expenses and every single one and look at what you spent your money on. You'll be shocked out of your brains. Again, you start to learn to obey God with money. That is the simple way of budgeting. Budgeting is obedience. Forget about tithing. Just start with budgeting and you'll, you're being obedient to God. It does lead to provision. Uh, next, next uh, almost final observation here. God sees our financial future and not just our financial present. In this story, there, this system is devised for this lady not only to pay off her debt, but also to be able to live with her sons. To have lost your husband in that culture that's a that's a, a culture where you know the 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 man was the breadwinner. This is a very very man centered culture. You know, two thousand eight hundred years ago in the Middle East, if you were a widow and you lost your husband, you were in serious financial problems. Here, she's got the debt paid. She's got enough to live with her sons, because the prophet wanted her to be taken care of, you see. And God wants the same thing for us today. He doesn't only look at our financial present. He looks at our financial future because the future is the next generation. The future is your kids, your, your grandkids. Um, and if you're in, in you know, debt up to your eyeballs and paralyzed financially, guess what? So will your kids be? So will your grandkids be? The odds are so God, he, 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 wants, he wants people to be free in this way because they can freely bless others when they're financially free. God doesn't just see your present. He sees into your future because he is in the future. And finally, uh, how in the world do finances, how does money relate to Jesus and the cross of Christ specifically? Uh, how does it relate? 
I want you to think, if you're the average Canadian in this room, you have $22,000 worth of consumer debt. Maybe it's credit cards, maybe it's lines of credit, maybe it's student loans you're paying off. Uh, I mean, you got the degree, and <laughs> you're still paying for it, you know what I'm saying? Like, could be whatever your debt load is, okay? But it's probably an average of 22, 23 grand in this room, probably. I, w I want you to imagine if tomorrow somebody paid your debt in full. They just wiped it out. They paid your debt in full. How would that feel? Would that be a good thing? If somebody paid, now's the time you could say amen and you better say it loud because like that, if someone paid my debt, I'm telling you, I would I, I would do cartwheels on this, on this. I mean, I would be so happy if somebody were to give me that shoebox full of hundreds like I talked about before, and whoosh, the whole thing would be gone. Okay, I want you to imagine that debt and what it would feel like emotionally for you to have that debt wiped off. Did you know in the grand scheme of things, whether you ever are debt-free or not, okay, whether you ever get to a place where, where finances are actually something you like talking about, did you know that whether, whether or not you ever get there, there is a debt that all of us owe God. All of us are in a way like that lady. She owed her two sons. Do you know what we owe God? What our debt is to God, it's our lives. So Paul says to the Romans, the wages of sin is what? It's death. So in God's economy, if you'll let me use that word, humanity owes God a debt. See, justice, the justice of God demands that our lives be taken because of our sin. That's the justice of God. He demands the ultimate penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. Uh, but Paul says the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus our Lord. While, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When Jesus died on the cross, one of the things that he said was, it is finished. Uh, the language that that's written in, it's a banking term. Tetelestai uh, in that language, the Greek language, which meant paid in full. It was an economic term that Jesus used on the cross. So what he's saying there is the sin debt of humanity is now paid in full. Isn't that good news? So, I mean, it goes way beyond your financial situation. Okay, thank God that our value in him is not whether or not we, we're good managers of money. Our value to God is seen by that cross and by what Jesus did on that cross. He paid the ultimate debt. I mean, God is the perfect banker. Think, think of him that way. He paid the ultimate debt, the debt that you and I owe for our sins. Now, that is good news. That is good news. And you learn it from this lady and her oil. 
So <laughs> remember, if God can do that, you know, 3,000, 2,800 years ago, uh, surely he can do it in our lives. But ultimately, ultimately, we need to be so appreciative and uh, so worshipful to God because he's ultimately paid uh, the debt of sin that we owe. Isn't that true? I'd invite the band if they'd come one more time and just close us with a song there. Just pick something that you, that you want to play, uh, you guys, and thank you for doing that. And I want to have a word of prayer with you. Uh, the last Saturday in October, the holidays are coming, and you know what that means? Ka-ching, ka-ching, <laughs> right? You, it's time to start spending <laughs> because the holidays are coming. Did you know that the average American household Go ahead and start playing when you're ready, Luciana. The average Canadian uh, American household spends $79 on Halloween. I'm sure they spend a lot more than that on Christmas. But imagine if they're going to spend that on Halloween, what are they going to spend over the next holiday season, all right? Remember next week, we're going to talk about how to survive <laughs> the holidays with your friends and your family time and uh, the stress that could create. Can you stand with me? Let me pray with you and let the band lead us. One